Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, Larry Stam will help us find boldness in sharing the good news of the gospel. And we begin a brand new series, Solving the Mystery of Jesus, with special guest Donna Howe. Knowing what is happening around us is important. Why it is important is vital. You can stay informed and know what is happening through the lens of Scripture with the resources found on our website, swrc.com. Over 1,000 timely books and DVDs from the top Bible prophecy teachers, swrc.com. Who really is Jesus Christ of Nazareth? To most Christians, he is the Savior of the world from the gospel narratives. That answer alone is tragically insufficient. Our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino, welcomes author Donna Howe to the microphone to help us solve the mystery of Jesus. Do you really know who Jesus Christ is? And I'm asking this question to those of you who have been Christians for many years and who may actually have been serving the Lord in a position of full-time ministry. Do you really know who Jesus Christ is? We are offering a three-volume set of books titled The Mystery of Jesus, Genesis to Revelation. There are three authors who have taken part in this monumental project, Dr. Tom Horn, whom we know and love very much, his daughter, Donna Howell, and another daughter, Allie Anderson. And when I first received this three-volume set, I called Tom Horn, and I wanted to interview him. And he wrote back and said, no, you need to interview Donna. (laughs) So Donna's on the phone. So Donna, thank you so much for what you did in this big project. You're welcome, Larry. It was my pleasure. I hope it blesses somebody. You know, it's been a blessing to me. These are books that are going to be very handy to me on my shelf for sermon preparation, Sunday school preparation, for writing something for Southwest Radio Church, The Mystery of Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's monumental. How long did it take the three of you to write this? It took me about three months of literally around-the-clock 24-hour writing. I had very little sleep. But for the most part, a lot of that stuff did flow because I want to really stress this. A pastor who is wanting to preach from every book of the Bible and show how Jesus appears in every single book of the Bible, that was something that was really heavy on my heart in the Mm. beginning, so I was very familiar with a lot of this stuff. But these books will help. I'm not trying to sell a book here, but any pastor out there that is running low on material, they have little time for sermon (laughs) prep, this series will actually help them with a million sermon outlines. And that's kind of where that that came from. Well, I agree. Pastors, missionaries, Sunday school teachers, and actually the average Joe Christian. And there are a lot of average Christians, but we're excited about the Word. We want to understand the Word. So I think these three volumes are are suited to everyone. And and I really appreciate uh, the work that the three of you have done. So throughout the series, you discussed the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling the prophecies foretold of him by accidents or coincidence. And you concluded that it is an impossibility. So could you share that breakdown with us? Because I think this is really, really important. Yeah. So I'll tell you that a lot of people will involve the supernatural acts of Christ when they consider this question. 
And whereas that is a beautiful and faithful thing to do, that doesn't really reach the secular crowd that doesn't believe in the supernatural aspect of his ministry years anyway. So what I did was I kind of took a little bit of a Lee Strobel and Matthew Stoner approach, Peter Stoner Mm. approach, Mm. where I stripped the supernatural out of that. Now what that means is that reduces it down to something called basic calculable axioms. That's a very fancy pants word, but basically what that means is historical things we know to have been true. And so you start with the number of Jews born in the Palestine area at the time, in the Israel area at the time that Jesus was born, and you have approximately 400,000 Jews. You take the fact that most of them were known, owned slaves, and that reduces it down to less than half, or around the 150,000 mark. So right now, that probability is medium amount. Then you have to look at the other historical facts, like the fact that Jesus had a Bethlehem birth, he was of the line of David, he died on the cursed pole, as foreshadowed in the Old Testament, he had no broken bones, which was extremely unusual, he had pierced hands, feet, and sides, all these things that were said of him, and when you start to take and calculate these basic calculable axioms, you get down less and less and less. So a mathematician in this case would have to, number one, narrow down the number of possible candidates down from those basic calculable axioms that we've just discussed. Number two, calculate the probability statistics of a man who died in this exact manner when it was not the norm. Number three, add the prophecy into the equation involving other potential prophetic fulfillments. And finally, four, calculate the possibility that all of this happened just like that by some freak fluke accident by the same individual who also just happened to claim that he was the Messiah. Mm. So the survey says Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. To share a short excerpt from Lee Strobel's case for Christ involving the mathematics on this, he says, the coincidence of Christ accidentally fulfilling only eight Mm. of the Old Testament prophecies is, listen to this number, One chance in 100 million billion, Mm. that number is millions of times greater than the total number of people who've ever walked the planet. Mm. Now, he gets it backed up by Peter Stoner here, and then I'll be done with this question. Listen to this number. The probability of filling only 48 prophecies was one chance in a, (laughs) this is crazy, trillion, 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 trillion. It's at this point, you know, you look at scholars say that Jesus may have fulfilled upwards of 550 prophecies, and that's a conservative number. At this point, it takes more faith not to believe that Jesus was exactly what he said he was. (laughs) There are so many things like that in the Bible. The fact that the, the stars, the earth, the distance from the moon to the earth, they're just, quote, by chance, favor life on the planet Earth. By chance. I mean, there's just one thing after another. I think you really have to reveal a hard-heartedness not to at least examine the Bible. And that's, of course, that's all we're asking people to do who are non-believers. The evidence is there. It's there. There have been so many atheists who have, have studied the evidence, attorneys and so forth, And they've just been flabbergasted. They said, well, this is God's word. And I think it's very obvious, and especially today, 
when I believe we're at the end of the age, we really need to get right with God. There are millions of people out there. They're just wandering around, young people, old people. They're just waiting for the world to go boom. Well, there is hope, and his name is Jesus. You and I and your dad, we wrote a book, Final Fire, on revival. One of the reasons I found why the Chinese people, you know, I pastor a Chinese church. I have a love for Chinese people. I've been married to one for <laughs> 62 years. But why the Chinese people love the Bible is because it's so logical and consistent with itself. Now, of course, it goes beyond that. It is supernatural. But there's something in the Word of God that is compelling that you can't find in right. any other book. Right. Your book points out an astounding foreshadowing of Christ in the tiny four-chapter book of Ruth. Many see a type of Christ in Boaz, but your book says it goes much deeper than that, and that's really significant. So tell us what most readers are missing. First of all, you've got to understand that there is a foreshadowing of Christ in Boaz. I mean, Boaz blesses Ruth to freely gather from his harvest. He tells her to enjoy the company of the other Israelite women at the site, informs her that he's already instructed the men that she's to be left alone. He's a total protector of her. He apparently has no reason to do this because this woman's a Moabite. And don't forget that Moab was built on a story of incest. So this is kind of like a blight on the map to these people. So... Boaz didn't say she could only have the food from his land if she was willing to pay interest or keep her work, work extra hours, do any personal favors. He just said, come here, take all of this for you. It's free. I will protect you while you're taking it. If you listen real close, you'll absolutely see that his entire story mirrors, truly I say unto you, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these my brothers, you've done it unto me, which is the words of Christ directly. But this is not even the best part. It goes into something so big and so deep, and most readers miss it. First of all, Ruth finds out that Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. Now, why do we care? A kinsman redeemer comes from the Hebrew word goel. Mm. Now, this is one who passed property ownership on to younger generations. If a property owner couldn't afford his property to buy back because he's fallen on tough times financially or he's leveraged it or mortgaged it, the goel bought the property back to keep it in the family. Now, Boaz was Ruth's goel, his kinsman redeemer, okay? The scroll that was written up before the goel, the terms of the sale and the rights of the property and the rights of the goel were written on a piece of parchment. Mm. That scroll was signed inside and out by multiple witnesses, according to Jeremiah 32.11. Then it was sealed. There was a seal placed on the outside of the scroll that could not be broken by anybody except a kinsman redeemer, a goel. They could break the seal to view the stipulations of the contract and see what must be done to keep the property and its inhabitants, you know, the wife, elderly, the kids, whatever, within the family. Now, flip to Revelations 5, verses 1 through 4. And I, John, saw the in the right hand of him, God is who he's talking about, that sat on the throne a scroll written, and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals thereof? Okay, what are they talking about here? This scroll was the scroll of Revelation that talks about the terms of our salvation. 
It goes on to say, and no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the scroll, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, John says, because no man was worthy to open the scroll or to read or to look thereon. Okay. Prior to Christ, there was no person in history that would ever be worthy to redeem humanity, nor has any other human person ever been kinsman to God. Mm. So consider Jesus in this moment. He's not only kinsman to God, he's kinsman to humanity because he is God and human. So in Boaz terms, okay, we are living on a property with no owner. We are Mm. doomed to wander the earth forever as no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, would be able to open this scroll where we reside. This is the terms of our salvation up to this point. Mm. Now, a couple of verses later, in Revelation 5, 5 through 10, we are introduced to this character, the utmost kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, and it says, and one of the elders, one of the presence, uh, witnesses present at the time that this scroll was sealed, saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the scrolls and loosen the seven seals thereof. And I beheld in the midst of the elders, again, we're talking about the witnesses here, stood a lamb as it had been slain. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of God who sat upon the throne. Okay, when he had taken the scroll, the elders fell down before the Lamb and they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals thereof. What follows this scene is a scene of praise where every living creature both in heaven and on earth worshiped this Lamb who was the only kinsman of humankind and of God who was capable, whose blood spilt was the currency for the repurchase of the land, earth, and its otherwise lost inhabitants, okay, humanity. So Jesus is the only entity in the earth who is literally kinsman to God and to humanity. Without his blood-bought purchase, our destiny, if he had not done what he had done, our destiny would be no more glorious than to remain spiritually lethargic while we wandered the corners of the earth, the damned corners of the earth, belonging to no one other than the prince of the power in the air and waiting death death and judgment. But Jesus' loving interactions with the human race, right? Watch this comparison between Boaz and Christ real quick. Boaz, his gentle, loving interactions with Ruth, never once looked back to what the world tried to make of her as a Moabite. Jesus' gentle and loving interactions with the human race never once requires that we look back to what the world tried to make of us. Mm. He is the kinsman redeemer of humanity. When you look at how Boaz is the archetype of Christ, an Old Testament type of Christ, we miss the fact that Ruth and Boaz, their story paints a picture of the kinsman redeemer. We would otherwise be completely 100% damned and wandering the corners of the earth with absolutely no redemption at all. Mm. When Boaz is the redeemer for Ruth, it foreshadows not just Boaz's treatment of Ruth foreshadows Jesus' treatment of us, Mm. but as the kinsman redeemer, there is only one man who is able to open the scroll for Ruth. And if you get to the end of that story, you see he redeems her. Mm -hmm. There is only one man slash God that could ever open the scroll for humanity, and we are redeemed. The foreshadowing is completely missed here. And now, of course, the final statement on Ruth and Boaz. Ruth and Boaz had Obed, and they had Jesse, who had David. Of course, this is 
the David, the greatest king of Israel, the very man whose legacy would point by the title to the son of David, which eventually arrives in the form of the Messiah. So Jesus is in the story of Ruth as the kinsman redeemer, but he is also in the story of Ruth through the bloodline of that which would produce the Davidic king of the Jews. This is the very one who would later carry out his own Boaz story of redemption to all mankind. Seriously, Larry, you cannot weave these elements by mere imagination. The Word is so beautiful, so wonderfully, infinitely beautiful in its extension of love and grace to us from the very beginning. Behold the Christ of Ruth, right? You see yes. what we miss in just a four-chapter book. Mm. This is so amazing. Obviously, you and certainly your dad, Dr. Tom Horn, and uh, your sister, Allie, dig into the Scriptures. Tell our listening audience about Bible study. I mean, what do you do? Now, I know when you <laughs> when you write a book and get on something, you— Day and night. You don't give up. You don't let go. But but suppose we've got a listener say, well, this is amazing. I'd like to find this stuff in the Bible for myself. What kind of advice would you give them? I think what I would suggest, you know, first of all, I invested heavily and financially in my Logos Bible software account. Mm-hmm. I get into that. Now, what that does is in one click, it opens hundreds of commentaries, hundreds of reflections of every single Bible verse that there is in the entire Bible. This is where I start, and then when I run across something that I've never heard before, I don't treat it like, oh, that's interesting. I dig. Once I have that, I dig. I go on the Internet, I go back into Logos, I go into every commentary I can find, and when something is miraculous and amazing to me, but the scholars treat it like, Oh, yeah, everybody knows this. No, they don't. The scholars have no idea that the average readers and listeners out there don't see this miracle. They just skimmed right past. Mm -hmm. Anybody can be a writer. Anybody can do what I do. Get into the Word. Dig, dig, dig. And when you find those miracles, boy, shout it. Because a lot of the people that are walking around you every day have no clue. Well, friends, we're visiting with Donna Howell. She is one of the authors of the three-volume set books, The Mystery of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. There are three authors, Dr. Tom Horn, Donna Howell, and Allie Anderson. Volume 1, The Old Testament. Volume 2, The New Testament. Volume 3, The Apocalypse. You'll want these three volumes. 1-800-652-1144. We'll have more from Donna Howell on The Mystery of Jesus on our next program. So who really is Jesus Christ of Nazareth? In each and all of the 66 biblical texts of the Holy Bible, Christ is in, through, and intrinsically sewn into every page, and irreversibly linked to everything in the world since the dawn of time. Donna Howe, Tom Horn, and Allie Anderson come together in a special three-volume work entitled The Mystery of Jesus, From Genesis to Revelation, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. These books tear down the walls of confusion around Christ's identity and show what the Bible wholly and collectively says about our Messiah. Order this important three-volume set today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Larry Stamm, author and conference speaker, is here now with insight into how you and I can boldly and lovingly share the good news.
In our last lesson, we talked about both the positive and the painful implications of the gospel message. We talked about the fact that positively, when we trust in Christ, we experience abundant and eternal life. And the painful implications of the gospel for the believer in Jesus is sometimes rejection, sometimes it's misunderstanding, sometimes it's persecution, but always the painful implications of trusting in Christ are temporal. The painful implications for rejecting Jesus and the gospel message are eternal in nature. Heaven is real, hell is real, and everyone has a choice based upon what they do with Jesus. In this lesson, we're continuing, and we are now talking about the servant's task. You and I, if you're listening to this and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a Christian. We who know the Lord, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his witnesses. And the issue is, what kind of witness will we be? As ambassadors of Christ, we have been entrusted with the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. And we've talked about that in previous lessons. Our God is a good God who wants his people to take his good news to those who have not yet heard. In Hebrew, we would say Besarah Tovah. Besarah Tovah is a Hebrew word which means glad tidings or good news, from which we get the word gospel. In the Hebrew scriptures or Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And in Romans chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul articulates well our duty to proclaim the gospel to those who have not yet met the Savior when he wrote these words, How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? Friends, the gospel is good news about Jesus. In fact, it's the very best news in the world. In fact, it's the most important message in the world that we need to deliver as ambassadors for Christ. And so as servants of the living God, as believers, that is our task, to proclaim the good news. Now, we need to understand regarding the gospel message that the gospel is a free gift. And when we are presenting the gospel to others, we need to make sure that they understand that salvation is a free gift of God. I've mentioned this before, but as a child, my father patterned an excellent work ethic for me to follow. And I remember him on occasion saying to me, kid, there are no free lunches. It was his way of telling me that if I wanted something, I'd have to work in order to get it. In other words, I'd have to earn it. The gospel message is a message whose central tenet is God's grace. God giving us salvation we don't deserve and can't earn. We've mentioned before Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where the Word of God says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
when we are communicating the gospel message, we need to make sure as servants of the living God proclaiming the gospel that we need to tell people that salvation is a free gift. There's one reason the Christian message is unique among all other religions. All other world religions in one way, shape, or form say, you're going to get to nirvana, heaven, paradise, whatever you want to call it, through what you do. Crank up a set of morals, a set of rules, and if people follow those to a certain degree, they will get to heaven based upon they do. That is not the gospel message, friends. That is a works-based righteousness. Biblical salvation is based upon not this do, but upon this happened. Jesus did it all on the cross. So we need to make sure as servants that we let people know that salvation is a free gift. And we quote Romans 6.23, where the Apostle Paul wrote, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we think about the servant's task as well, when we're sharing the gospel with others and we share the wonders of the fact that salvation is a free gift of God received through faith in Christ, we also need to remember as his servants that we're not always going to receive a warm reception when we deliver the message of the gospel. Because you see, friends, the gospel message and the gospel itself makes a statement about the inherent condition of man, and it is this. We are not good. And this flies in the face of the common perception that man is inherently good. No, people are not good. If you remember, Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, only God is good. The reality is, as human beings, we are sinful. David wrote in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the prophet stated, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So we shouldn't be surprised that a message of the good news of God is couched in the bad news that something is terribly wrong with people. Naturally, we don't want to hear that we are born into and live in a state of depravity. I'm going to close with this quote from the late British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, who put it this way regarding human depravity. He wrote, quote, The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. So, friends, I hope this teaching has been an encouragement to you as servants of the living God, as ambassadors for Christ. When we bring the message, we let people know that, yes, the gospel is good news and we can receive the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus. But at the same time, good news is based upon bad news. Next time, we're going to continue talking about the gospel message, which at times can be polarizing. And until next time, friends, the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Shalom. Today in the Resource Center, we're featuring the three-volume set of books entitled The Mystery of Jesus, From Genesis to Revelation, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. These books tear down the walls of confusion around Christ's identity and show what the Bible wholly and collectively says about our Messiah. Order this important three-volume set today when you call 1-800-652-1144. 
That's 1-800-652-1144. Visit our website as well, swrc.com. Tomorrow, we conclude our series on the mystery of Jesus. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported now for over 90 years by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.